I operate mainly C and D neighborhoods, so there can be a decent amount of crime in our area and maybe a problem that the tenant is complaining about. You can identify and solve for those problems very easy if you know the areas. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about their pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E. You're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Mike Bonadis. How you doing, Mike? Thanks, Joe. Really looking forward to being on today's show. Greatly appreciate you having me. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it as well. A little bit about Mike. He's a full-time landlord and owner of Side by Side MRO, which is a construction company that specializes in pre-1940 construction and property preservation. He also co-owns Terra Vestra, which is a property management company. They manage 250 units. He's got a personal portfolio of 25 units, so he's an active guy, very, very active guy. So let's talk about this. He's based in Sewell, New Jersey, by the way. So first, Mike, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your focus, and then we'll go from there. I started off like a lot of other real estate investors. 
in a corporate job doing nine to five work. And it was for DeWalt Power Tools. So at least I saw construction unfold. And as I spent more time there, a buddy of mine who was in the cubes with me was a landlord. And he said, hey, Bonadies, you should check landlording out. It's a lot like what we do for here, but you can make more money for yourself. And one thing led to another. I became a landlord. And quickly from there, I grew my portfolio, ended up becoming a property manager. And then from there, getting my own construction company and have a nice little trifecta going of multiple cash streams, but within the same industry, all complementing themselves. I love talking to people who own their own construction company. And yours specializes in something interesting, in my opinion. It's pre-1940 construction and property preservation. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. A lot of construction companies out there, they might do new construction or like bigger pockets always talks about, hey, get properties that are over the age of 1952 after the construction code was established. Well, I decided, hey, why don't we just go the opposite direction and do exactly what everyone else isn't <laughs> doing? And we specialize in pre-1940 construction and more specifically, multifamily pre-1940 construction. And part of that is a byproduct of the area that I work and invest in. I'm in the swamps of South Jersey. So there's a lot of towns here where the average age of the original construction is 1880 to 1920. So if you're going to buy a house in this area, you're already looking at older construction. Furthermore, from a business perspective, we saw that there wasn't a lot of contractors or individuals who were specializing in these older homes. And there was a large demand for people that could do construction in these homes and renovate them and get them up to snuff. Just because there was a lack of supply, we said, why don't we fill that gap and specialize in this? And I think this could be quite lucrative. I was already a landlord. My partner, who is my partner in crime and almost everything, Drew Side, he was a landlord as well. And almost all of our properties was pre-1940. So we already had some familiarity and we decided, all right, let's just work on this. If we're going to continue to be landlords and grow our portfolio, we're going to have to know pre-1940 construction and we're going to have to be good at it. So we started rehabbing properties that are in that age range and building out crews that know how to operate on those properties and the difficulties of those properties because they are definitely not your run-of-the-mill construction jobs. A lot of these properties are built like jigsaw puzzles. And they were built three or four times over by someone's great, great grandfather who built it without power tools and kind of was just doing however they wanted to do. So now there's a large amount of demand in this for South Jersey. And a lot of the, let's say, landlord friendly buildings or good deals in South Jersey are of this age group. So it really complemented everything quite well. So let's talk about that because you're focused on an area that there wasn't a lot of other focus or maybe no other focus from other construction companies. But if you were to ask them, I imagine they'd say, well, yeah, because Mike, (laughs) it's just tough work and there's a path of least resistance in other places to make money and to do well. So can you get into some more specifics? You said jigsaw puzzles and built many times over by multiple people. But what were some real challenges that you all came across with this business and how did you solve for those challenges? Where to start there? Maybe the companies that looked at this opportunity, because I imagine some construction people said, oh yeah, there's an opportunity there, but they're like, oh, I don't want to mess with that. What would be the top two or three things? Push them away, but pulled you to it. So I would say the biggest difference between 
post-1940 and pre-1940 construction is the focus on mechanicals. So if you think about your average construction company, it's very easy to drop flooring, to install a new kitchen, to demo out something, to hang new drywall, to make it look pretty. There's a lot of people that are very good at doing that, and it's rather cookie cutter. You can just say, okay, tear up the floors, put new ones down, just got to measure it out, and we'll just get away and start, drop new trim. Pre-1940 construction, you have that element, but the focus is much more on the mechanicals. Because a lot of times the plumbing is absolutely janky. The electrical might have cloth wiring, might have a ton of knob and tube. You might have wires completely ran to the wrong boxes if you're in multifamily construction. So you have to have a level of comfort troubleshooting and running diagnostic work on what works currently in the property or just stripping it all out and understanding, okay, look, this piping is completely shot. I've got an Orangeburg sewer main going out the front of the property is completely deteriorated. We're just going to know that we're going to have to replumb everything and we are going to have to just tear everything out and get started with it. So I think that comfort working with mechanicals and enjoying working with mechanicals, it's not necessarily as enjoyable as cosmetics, right? Because with cosmetics, you can see the work that you're doing. You can plan it out in your head very well. And then you can see a finished product and you're like, whoo, this looks way prettier than when I started. Mechanicals, if you're running new HVAC ductwork or if you're replumbing the place, there's not that level of satisfaction that comes at the end of it cosmetically, right? You're like, well, there was a pipe here before and now there's another pipe here before. This <laughs> pipe works better. So, the new one's shinier. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's the biggest differentiator between the two. And that cascades down to problem solving too. With a lot of the, let's say your generic flip construction, again, it's more about cosmetically pleasing something and that doesn't require a lot of problem solving elements to it. If you have pre-1940 multifamily construction, you might have wires that are going to the incorrect boxes. And now you have to figure out how are you going to fish one wire over here to make it make sense without having to tear down a wall or something like that. Or on another hand, boilers are pretty common in South Jersey in the construction we're doing. So we might get there into a basement and it looks like a kraken. There's just pipes going everywhere, leaving the boiler systems. And you're looking at it and you're trying to figure out, all right, do we need to replumb these boilers because everything's on a common system or do we want to have them being independent? And if we do that, we have to rethink how we're going to lay out some of these units or rehab it. So there's definitely more problem solving. It's not like one of those things where you know how to do it a couple times over and then you just create a system around it. So the system involves problem solving more often in pre-1940 construction. So I think that scares away a lot of people from doing that kind of work, if that makes sense. Why 1940? Why not 1930 or why not 1950? What took place in 1940 that you're focused on pre-1940? Well, late 1940s into early 1950s, the construction code started to get solidified. And now you had a state construction code that clearly outlines, hey, this is how you're supposed to do construction. When you hit that early 1940s and before, there wasn't these big developers that were creating standardized homes. Your family was building a home and it was however, the person that knew the most about putting things together was developing that home or building that home. So nothing is standardized before that date. Now, I know that may change from state to state, but generally speaking, I think 
Most of the codes were developed in like 1952 or late 1940. So when you hit early 1940 and before, it's all custom construction. And there wasn't a lot of big developers. For instance, in New Jersey, Levitt is pretty well known. Levitt Town and all that kind of area. They had standardized homes that they built for everywhere. When you're in that earlier time frame in the United States, nothing was standardized. I've walked into 50 different homes and seen 50 different ways of putting together a house in some of those older construction. Let's switch gears and let's talk about your personal portfolio. You have 25 units. Are they all single family homes? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I have 25 units and they're all small multis, either duplexes, triplexes. I've got two mixed use buildings and we decided to go the multifamily route because we thought it was a little bit less risk-inducive if things go sideways. And we look at it as, again, put my construction hat on, there's only one roof. There's potentially one furnace or two furnaces. There's less objects that can break down over time in multifamily. So the long-term play is to get multifamilies. Even though you might get a little bit less rent, and people say that your tenants will stay a shorter amount of time in multifamilies versus single families. I disagree, but we thought that the margins were higher on multifamilies and there was less things that would break down over time. So I don't own any single family houses. I have just multifamilies all in the South Jersey area. I do tend to buy white elephants. So all my multifamilies are really strange in one way or another, but they've been very lucrative deals because of that. Some may have costed me more money than others, but if you can problem solve around it, you buy the deals that less people are looking at, and therefore you can get it at a better price. Well, you've piqued my curiosity. Tell us about a couple of those. One of them is a mixed-use triplex that used to have a bar on the bottom and two residential units on top. The bar was converted into a residential. We went through the zoning process of that, and we turned it into an apartment in the downstairs. The building has like seven sides to it. It doesn't look like your traditional house at all. And I think back in the day, it used to be a train station a (laughs) hundred years ago. And no one wanted to buy it because it had zoning issues that we had to work through. And no one wants to get a potential mixed-use property and convert it to residential in a highly regulated state like New Jersey. And it does have its own unique challenges, right? Because it used to be commercial. The mechanicals were set up for commercial. So you had things like two sewer cleans leaving it versus a traditional one sewer clean leaving the property. The gas meter. And why is that a problem? It's hard to trace problems. If something's backing up and the backup's out in the street, you're going to have to test more things to problem solve it. That's the core. Okay. So in that case, do you convert to one or? No, we leave it as is and we just learn it over time. Okay. If you're an out-of-state investor, if you're not involved with your properties pretty directly every day and a sewer problem comes up for that particular property, you might have to spend more money getting someone to troubleshoot the problem and diagnose what's the issue. If you know the properties that you buy incredibly well, like what we do, we try to get it, really understand our properties that we buy. Well, when someone says, hey, we got this problem coming up, but we're like, all right, well, we already troubleshooted it a bunch of times. I know exactly what this problem is based on how it was constructed. And then we knew it was a bar previously. So Therefore, the problem is probably here. And then that ends up being what it is. Great. You solved it. If not, you got to do some more troubleshooting. So it's a little bit more active than some other investments, but it can be very lucrative. What'd you buy it for? I bought this one for 140000 And how much you put into it? I want to say 32000 bucks, And I probably spent an additional $20,000 on top of that because of zoning variances. And I had a sewer line collapse after the fact. So another fifty k we'll say. 
and my gross rents on it are 3400 bucks a month, which is pretty decent for South Jersey. So let's see, you're about 190 all in and 3400 yeah, 1.7%. You're almost at the 2% rule on a place in South Jersey. And what do you think it's worth now? We had it appraised for, I think it was like 235, 245. Mm -hmm. So I was able to pull out all of our money. We're in the money for nothing. How long did it take to get the zoning fixed or changed, I should say? It took us about a year. Okay. So knowing what you know now, would you do it all over again? Absolutely. I learned so much. I think the biggest learning factor there is a lot of other states don't have a lot of complexity around zoning like New Jersey does. Zoning is very tough in New Jersey. And this deal gave me my first taste of politics and real estate and their intersection. I had to go up in front of the zoning variance board. I had to talk to the mayor and the town councils and get their votes. And it was a great interaction. I learned a lot. What's one thing you would do differently knowing what you know now if presented a similar opportunity? Uh, scope your sewer lines. Oh my gosh. If you're going to buy a property and it is older than 1952, scope that sewer line because the half-life of iron pipes are somewhere between 65 and 85 years. If you're buying around that 1950, 1940, 1930 timeframe, that means the original cast iron pipes are decaying or corroding and they're getting close to collapse. And now I scope all sewer lines if I'm buying a property. So that's one deal, the mixed-use triplex. You have a bar downstairs, two residential upstairs. You changed the bar into a residential unit. Just curious, you have seven sides to the building. So how did you close off certain sides? I mean, if it was a bar, I imagine there's a bunch of windows. So the resident doesn't want people peeping in. We're relatively lucky here. There was only one commercial door in the property. The bars here in South Jersey look a lot like Cheers does. So there's not a lot of windows and there weren't a lot of entrances and exits. So that wasn't really a concern, but we kept the commercial door in there. Some people look at it as a unique character building item to the property. And we had a lot of interest when we're renting it out because it still has those commercial doors. It has these giant commercial glass storefront windows and people think that's pretty neat. It also had an ATM still on the outside of the property that gave it some character. And it's a brick building. So it really gives a unique feel for when you're moving in there. It's not for everybody. It's not your standard, like, oh, you kept the ATM. I, you know, home, but it gives a character. So you kept the ATM? Yeah, kept the ATM. What do you make on that? I don't make anything because it's not functional, but we jokingly collect the rent through the ATM every month. <laughs> Why don't you make it functional? I do it for the sake of the tenants. It is right next to their door. I don't want to have people just coming up. Why don't you remove it? Again, for character aesthetics, when we were showing the unit, people were fascinated by the ATM still being there. And the tenants have access to the guts of the ATM. So we made it a joke that when we pick up the rent, we collect it through the ATM. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what about another white elephant? Which one should we go with next? Mixed-use properties are always great white elephants. Yeah, My second they're fun. Mix. They're fun to talk about. They are. And they're super unique because the funding for them can be pretty difficult too, but... I have a mixed-use property that's a mile away from the other mixed-use property. And this was a property when we bought it, it was one single commercial storefront and then two residential units on top. So it was actually a triplex when we got it. And I think if you look at how the property was originally built, it was built as two block and lots. So two duplexes that over time, someone must have got the zoning variance to fuse them together to make a triplex. 
And then we tore down the commercial storefront and we made them two different commercial storefronts. So we turned it back into a quadplex. And that one was a unique challenge just because the process of going from a triplex back into a quadplex, splitting up the utilities again and dealing with commercial storefronts instead of just residential units, it always presents a learning opportunity. It's just something not cookie cutter like residential is, right? In residential, you have kitchens, bathrooms, bedrooms, everybody needs them, right? With commercial storefronts, you're trying to build a vanilla box that someone else can then come into and turn into their own. And we had to do a lot of electrical work there. We had to rewire most of the building, redo the HVAC. And uh, that was a challenge because the building was not set up to be a quadplex for at least the past seven to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And what makes that a little bit more of a white elephant is it's a mixed-use building and it still is a mixed-use building. Mm -hmm. So when we had to do lending, it had to be a commercial loan, but the ARV of the property was $235,000. So when you have a mixed-use commercial loan that is under $500,000, it's a very small subset of lenders who will do long-term financing for that type of property. If I look back at the other mixed-use property we just spoke about, that was a fully residential building when we were done with it. Therefore, we could get residential multifamily lending against it. If it's a mixed-use property still, we have to get a commercial loan. So we had to do a little bit more shopping around. We had to work more with local banks on getting the financing on there because there's just such a small subset of individuals who will do long-term lending for under $500,000 commercial loans, at least in the South Jersey area. Let's talk about the numbers on just your initial analysis when you're looking at the opportunity. How do you determine to do those renovations and put all that work and time into it compared to just renovating and sprucing up how it currently exists and finding tenants for the units? We look at it as a cost per door because in South Jersey, taxes are a pretty massive element of your equations because taxes are higher than most of the other states in the United States. So if we're looking at, okay, we can buy a property for less than $50,000 a door and we can put enough rehab in it so that our all-in cost is under $75,000 per door. We know that between the taxes and the rents, we will have very good cash flow on a property. So to go back to the first property spoke with, the bar conversion element, South Jersey is a lot of small towns. It's not super urbanized, very rural. So we didn't like the prospects of commercial rentals for that property just because we didn't think that demand was incredibly high. And we said, okay, look, this building's priced at 140. That hits our standard for residential purchasing. And you would be in the deal for less than 75K a door for each of the residential units or a total net price was less than 75K a door. And we know what the taxes are. So therefore, if we convert it over to residential, it'll cash flow like a monster. And that's kind of the way that we look at properties in the South Jersey area, just because we know given the South Jersey level of taxes, if we're into the doors for less than this, we know that we'll cash flow. And that changes from county to county. So if I go to another county that I do a lot in, maybe it might not be we're all in for 75 for the door. Maybe it's we're all in for 50 for the door. And this is what the standard of taxes are in this area. We know that this is a good deal. So it's a little bit different than most people, but I would say we're still relatively similar to 
what you would see other conventional wisdom saying to buy properties on. Oh, yeah. All in per door thought process, plus keeping in mind whatever your largest expense is going to be or one of your largest expenses, which is taxes. That might vary depending on municipality within the state, but the all in per door thought process is really helpful regardless of where we live. Taking a step back, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I'm going to say that knowing your neighborhoods and knowing your properties Knowing where you do business is so critical. Knowing every detail of where you do business, especially if you plan to grow a lot there. We know our neighborhoods and we know the buildings that we buy like the back of our hands. It allows us that when a problem comes up, we can understand, is this a symptom or is this a core problem? Whether it's maintenance related or even tenant relations related. I operate in mainly C and D neighborhoods, so there can be a decent amount of crime in our area and maybe a problem that the tenant is complaining about. You can identify and solve for those problems very easy if you know the areas. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I like it. Let's go. Let's do it. First, quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Ever wonder how the top in real estate got there? The Invest This podcast hosted by real estate investor Scott Bauer interviews the top names in the industry, giving you the tips and tricks that help you catapult your real estate business to success. Find them at investthispodcast.com. All right. Best ever book you've recently read? I'm going to say Four Hour Work Week, even though I hated that book when I first read it. I reread it every once in a while and it really helps me understand how to cut the excess headaches from my business. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? I host webinars and podcasts for my local RIA, and then I'll often spend time with the newbies after those webinars or podcasts to help them understand specifically the South Jersey area. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? You can reach out to me on Facebook. We, we post a lot there. It's either at SBSMRO or at Terravestra Rentals. Mike, thanks for being on the show, talking about your construction company, talking about how you've built your portfolio and why you focus on, as you call it, white elephants, properties that a lot of other real estate investors would shy away from. And really, it's the same thought process for the construction company and your personal portfolio, right? It's like finding the opportunity where others either shy away from or just don't know of the opportunity because they haven't really looked at it. And I'm glad that we talked about your desire and your enjoyment for problem solving the jigsaw puzzles that the properties present, as well as just being really knowledgeable about how to work the mechanicals inside and out. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever day. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Greatly appreciate it.